Hey, it's Bao, and this is Coffee with Bao, where I chat with awesome people about their creative process, their cultural identity, and how they continue to grow as a human being.、Ah! And I've had such awesome guests on this show. You can find them all and get in touch with me on my website, coffeewithbao.com. You guys, I'm hanging out with somebody very exceptional today. She is a fellow. Child of the refugee camp. <laughs> she's a Vietnamese American infectious disease specialist and an author.、Uh, she's been working to fight against、uh, HIV AIDS for several years, and during the pandemic, she's been working with、uh, COVID 19 patients. And somehow she's found time to publish her debut children's book called Coronavirus is Boo Boo. So here's my friend and lab coat model, Dr. Kate Le. What's up, Kate? Thanks for having me, Bao. I expected you to wear your lab coat to the to the coffee chat. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I try never to wear my lab coat outside of the hospital. Do you actually have to wear that at work? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, okay, you know, it's funny because as infectious disease doctors, we don't really like wearing what we call fomites, things that can transfer. You know,、um, bacteria, viruses from one room to the other. But as a very small Asian female, I feel if I don't wear my coat, I'm, I mean, even when I wear my coat, I'm the dietitian, I'm,、oh, the, nurse,、wow. I'm the pharmacist, I'm never the, the MD. So I got to do what I can. <laughs> wow, interesting. Well, cool. No lab coat, but thank you for making it here. We're matching with the black shirts today. Oh, yeah. Um, cheers to you. Cheers. From 11 miles away in, I guess, still Los Angeles, right? Yeah, is it really 11 miles away? I think so. You grew up in the Midwest, I read. Like,、yeah. um, I didn't realize, but you mentioned earlier that Minnesota actually has a pretty big like, immigrant population for some reason. Like, is that where they just settled a lot of immigrants from、you、certain know, programs? I wanted to say that I think it's one of those places that had a lot of government support for、mm. our immigrant programs.、Um, but we were actually sponsored by a、uh, you know, a religious、um, family. So I'm not sure if those are necessarily tied together, but yeah, it's, it's a huge immigrant hub. We actually have one of the biggest、um, Somali populations outside of Somalia. I think the biggest. Um, but、oh, also、wow. a lot of Southeast Asians. Yeah, Southeast Asians, East Africans,、um, Eastern Europeans. So、cool. it wasn't as, as、um, you know, white bread and butter growing. As most people would think. <laughs> as people would think. But、yeah. it is as cold as people would think. Cold. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about that. You were born in a refugee camp.、Um, mm-hmm. I was at a refugee camp for a portion of my. Very young life, too, but、yeah. I was in the Philippines. Philippines. Oh, so are we. Cool. Yeah. In Bataan?、Um, I think in Manila. Okay. Yeah. So tell us, or tell me, I guess, about、um, your family's refugee yeah. journey. Yeah. You know, I really can't. I was a baby when I came to the US.、Yeah. And so I don't know about you, but I obviously don't remember any of it. You just see pictures. Same. Think, yeah. I think really. <laughs> It is really a testament to immigrant stories and the kind of things that they endure that seem just crazy when you look back at it and when you hear stories about it. And、yeah. I don't know about your parents, but my family almost never talks about it. I always say that because it, I feel like it keeps me really grounded. And, and I think it is a huge part as to why what motivates me through life. Is you know, making your family proud and, and make, they just sacrifice so much、yeah. um, for you to have a better life. And so,、um, yeah, I actually do I think about it a lot, even though I don't remember any of it. But <laughs> what, what have you learned so far about that journey and, and how your family initiated that whole process? Yeah,、um, so it's interesting because my grandfather. Both of my grandparents worked for the US. My grandfather、yeah. actually worked directly for the US Army, and my grandmother worked for a private US company. And so, right after the fall of Saigon, you know, he had gotten all of his paperwork for us to leave the city and come to the US. But my grandma tells the story of how 
they were getting, I think he was, he had gone for the day for some reason and she was at home. She had all the papers and Viet Cong soldiers were like knocking door to door and looking for people who had had ties so that they could take them to re-education camp and mm-hmm. basically freaked out and burned everything like immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's why our family didn't actually leave until 10 years later. So in 1985, um, and that was right before the markets opened up in uh, Vietnam. So things were really, really bad. It was mm-hmm. really hard to find food. Um, so they really left during the worst of it and ended up going through my grandma's connections with her private, um, us company. And, and that's how we got sponsored and all of that. So, um, you know, as I'm told, we only had like a week and, uh, they got all their stuff together and basically just left. And then my mom actually found out she was pregnant once she got to the refugee <laughs> camp Dang. You know, testing to make sure that you don't have any other, you know, medical issues. So, yeah. Yeah, so I was there and born there, and then I came here when I was when was a month or so. Wow, that's so... How about you? Um, we actually came in 1985 also. Oh, really? Um, but I was born in Vietnam. I came to the refugee camp as a very young toddler, and so I don't remember anything either. <laughs> and it's super similar because my mom also worked for like a... I guess like a military logistics company, but it was like a mm-hmm. private firm. Yeah, yeah. So they resettle you in Minnesota because that was where your sponsors were. Yep. It's cold as shit in Minnesota. Yeah. How, yeah. how, how did your fa- parents kind of like adapt I to that? I have no idea because <laughs> we got here in, I want to say March, April, and in Minnesota that's still winter. So winter is like legit at least six months there. Um, <laughs> so their pictures of when they first came is like, they're all bundled up and it's like, you know, two feet of snow outside. Um, and you know, coming from a tropical country, I have no idea. (laughs) And sometimes I ask them, they're just like, yeah, it's just really cold. (laughs) I I mean, it was probably a step up from the refugee camps. I can only imagine. Um, but it's funny because now they've been there for, you know, 30 something years and they're Mm -hmm. so used to it. They go anywhere else and they're like, it's too hot. Minnesota, yeah so um but with global warming i will say it's not as cold as when i was growing up there we definitely get way less snow way less snowstorms so a little bit different but it's still pretty cold i know that for us as a first generation immigrant family we did a lot of vietnamese things to try to hang on to our culture like did you guys have certain things that you remember that were like emblematic of of preserving the culture yeah i mean uh, i'm sure your family is the same way but obviously we're very very food centered Mm. um and i'm really lucky because everybody in my family are amazing cooks both the men and the women and so you know i remember growing up and we didn't have a table so we would put like a big picnic blanket on the living room floor and all the food would be on the floor and we would just Mm -hmm. sit around and eat um and so I think a lot of my connections to my culture are really based around food. And when I go home, you know, Terrence was with me and my partner and he was like, you guys eat breakfast. And then literally you're talking about what you're going to eat for lunch. So definitely food. But then we were also, um, I, you know, I was raised Buddhist. My, my whole mother's side of the family is Buddhist and, uh, we celebrated all of like the death anniversaries, the mm-hmm. obviously, you know, Vietnamese New Year. And yeah, I think I remember most the the death anniversary celebrations, uh, which is, you know, a lot of basically you're you're celebrating your ancestors and you are making food, of course, um, so that they have it in their their afterlife and you you do that um on the day of their death on the lunar lunar Mm -hmm. calendar every year so um there's several of those throughout the year (laughs) and it always seemed like it was a a fun you know family get together and everybody would just sit around and talk and eat so yeah yeah, i think a lot of a lot of those types of traditions cool so i have this question but there's there's two different ways to ask it i'm gonna ask it both ways um what kind of foods did you guys grow up making at home 
Mm-hmm. Which also could be asked, like, what part of Vietnam were you guys from? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're from the South. Uh, my family grew up there, right outside of, of Saigon in a little, um, little suburb, I guess you could call it. The stuff that you get at the um, restaurants, you know, were really more like like special occasion yeah. kind of things. It was really what I call like peasant food. Yeah, <laughs> you totally. Know? I forgot what the Vietnamese term for it, for that is. But, um, you know, always rice, always some sort of gan or like soup dish and then mm-hmm. some sort of meat dish and maybe like a, a, a vegetable dish. But... Uh, I think I just never, I didn't even realize how different the cuisines are in different regions until totally. I actually went back to Vietnam. Yeah. And um, I was actually working at a hospital in Hanoi for a couple of months. And the food is, is very different. Um, so good. <laughs> right. So good, but, uh, yeah. So I'm from the South. Your family's from the South too, I assume. Yeah. We're from Da Lat, uh, kind oh, of in okay. the mountains. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, so growing up in Minnesota, was your groups of your group of friends pretty diverse in terms of uh, ethnic backgrounds? Yeah, I think you know, kind of looking back on it, I always had kind of two two groups of of friends, huh. which is kind of interesting, um, and I think a reflection as a little bit of of class and education. But yeah. my there were the friends that I you know hung out with outside of school, which were all either kind of lower class white skaters or um, uh, or ethnic people, you know, a lot of uh, Cambodians, some Vietnamese, mm. a lot of Hmong people, um, and then and some Somalians. Um, and then there were my friends at school, which I would hang out with when we had like school projects, but I was in all the honors classes. And so everybody was white. Yeah. <laughs> and there was just a huge distinction, you know, like I never really talked to my white friends about like what I did after school with like my mm, other Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it, it was, it's interesting. Um, and it kind of sucked that there was that, um, that kind of distinction and you know we kind of talked about it earlier but there's a huge distinction between southeast asians and their experience in the u.s or even in their home country obviously mm-hmm. um versus you know chinese japanese koreans yeah where, and there were very few of them um or at least that i knew of when i was growing up in minnesota so you know there were a couple of chinese people in in my um honors classes but we just didn't really connect, even though we were Asian in a sea of white people, like our experiences are just so different as Asians in the U S that I really didn't identify with them. Well, I feel like it's different for us Southeast Asians um, versus the experience of East Asians for a lot of other people on the outside. It's like, we're all just Asian people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, had there been any experiences in, that you can remember where you like that came in stark relief? Oh, yeah. I mean, even today. Like, mm. I think especially with all the kind of recent, um, you know, headlines about hate crimes against Asians and stuff, it's been kind of something that I've had to like talk about a lot. But I think it's been a really interesting time um, yeah. because you know, even Terrence, my partner, who is black, at one point had said to me, you know, Asians don't really get discriminated against. Um, Or you have like, I forgot exactly what he said. I probably am so mad about it. (laughs) 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 But, you know, it's, it's that concept of a model minority. Yeah. Right. And and I think what it comes down to is this idea that there are good and bad stereotypes. Yeah. But there's really there's really not. And you know, when people talk about Asian people as a whole group, you, I don't think they realize that they're lumping people who are com- from completely different countries with at times very different cultures yeah. and whose experiences in America are extremely different. You know, you and I came from refugee camps and often, you know, grew up on welfare and that was just in the 1980s, yeah. right? We're still relatively young. 
Um, whereas I have friends who, you know, my Chinese and Japanese friends have been here for generations. Some of them don't even speak, you know, their, their native family language. And I think a couple experiences, I remember one time I went to, I was invited to a Thanksgiving uh, dinner with a friend of mine who is Cantonese and her dad is really bright engineer, medical engineer kind of guy. He went to Caltech and they were sitting and talking about like science and politics over dinner. And I was just like in awe because I could <laughs> never imagine having that type of conversation with my family. Yeah. You know, not only is there that like language barrier, like I do speak Vietnamese, but I don't know a lot of, you know, Same. very technical terms. Um, but also my family's not that doesn't have that level of education. And part of that is because they came here with like literally nothing. So I think even that kind of experience was really new for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, I think really with the headlines lately, it's been um, interesting to have kind of the discussions about, you know, these model minority stereotype and how, you know, I remember when all, there was all those shootings in Atlanta and actually somebody at work was like, so what, what's your take on, you know, people saying this is not a hate crime because it was sexually driven. The motive was, you know, like a sex addiction. I mean, I, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I, my response was, well, the fact that you can have somebody murder a bunch of people based on the fact that he saw an entire race of women mm-hmm. as sexual, subjects. yeah, as subjects, you know, that, if that doesn't explain colonialism and imperialism and like white supremacy to a T, then I don't know what is. Um, so, you know, that's Man, I'm so glad we're talking there. about this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad that I'm, I'm in California to be honest. I, I love that. I have a daughter that's going to be able to be, you know, she's going to grow up and see all different kinds of people. I think mm-hmm. looking back, I didn't realize kind of that type of struggle that you, you deal with internally when you're around a bunch of people who don't look like you yeah. and inadvertently or on purpose, people are going to say things to you about your culture. And as a kid, you just want to fit in no matter what, no matter where you come from. I think as a kid, you, you don't like to feel singled out because of something and you don't learn to really be proud of your heritage until you're older. And I think that yeah. that's natural. Um, so yeah. I, I'm I'm really happy to to raise a family in in California for sure. You are a doctor, <laughs> but you're also a very creative person. Obviously, um, I mean, growing up, were you like an art kid? How did you discover your your passion for both like wanting to go into medicine, but also like being a creative person? Yeah, I. I think I've always been really lucky and blessed that way. I've always been very like right and left brained. You know, my mom, there's a lot of people in my family who are very artistic. Several of my Mm -hmm. uncles, you know, painted and and do all this stuff. So I think I was always exposed. My mother loves music. She plays guitar. She sings. And so I always, and I'm an only child. So Mm -hmm. I think I grew up playing by myself a lot. And a lot of it was just like, and drawing and reading. Um, so I think that side of me was always nurtured, but I think I'm also very left-brained in that I've always liked the sciences. I've always been good at it. it but it wasn't until much later, I think, that I was like, okay, I want to do medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, I had entertained other non-science field. You know, I thought about like, architecture school which kind of marries both worlds I think in some ways um but for me I think it's the maybe it's that like immigrant drive where I don't think my my mom is very supportive I don't know if the rest of my family would have been very happy (laughs) if I was like I'm gonna go be an artist you know (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you know the struggle um so I think just from a um, sustainability. I want to be able to take care of my family financially. I wanted to find something that was, I guess, more traditional and, um, reliable in that sense. Mm 
Mm. And I definitely didn't grow up with a, with a mom that, that made me, you know, have to be like either a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. She was always really supportive, but, um, I'm lucky in that I, I do love medicine and I love taking care of people, but I also love the, the science, um, behind it. So, yeah, but I oh. still try to find some time to, to be creative and, read I still try to read a lot um but it's it's like my hobby it's the way that I I wind down I'm not a person that just likes to sit and veg out and watch tv <laughs> get really antsy Terrence always says that like I just don't know how to relax but it's like, <laughs> my, my way of relaxing is really you know to do some type of some type of art or um so luckily for me that that made me productive in other ways yeah totally you studied medicine in St. Louis at Washington University School of Medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how did you end up in California at Cedars-Sinai? Yeah, so you know how when you look back at your life and you kind of see, like, what why decisions led to other decisions? Wow. <laughs> at that time, it didn't really feel like that. So I think looking back on it, when I left Minnesota and got into WashU, which is a really prestigious school, med school is a really hard time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt really out of place. Um, it was a lot of other students who, you know, came from families of doctors or, you know, just like a really different background than me. And I could never really figure out why I felt so uncomfortable it really wasn't until I did my residency in Tennessee. So I was in the South. Um, I don't know how I ended up, (laughs) (laughs) but um, you know, racial issues in the South, it kind of doesn't get clearer than that. And even Nashville, um, which is pretty liberal for the South, it's still South. And, um, my experiences in residency were, you know, dealing with a lot of racism towards me. Um, mm. My primary clinic was at a VA. Uh, and so all of my patients who were vets, many of them were so lovely. And even a lot of them who, you know, would say some things to me, I think a lot of them were dealing with PTSD from the Vietnam War, etc. Things would come up you know? Um, and so that was a very interesting experience. I, you know, I got called a couple of racial slurs before that I like hadn't even heard since I was in elementary school when kids wow. were being kids. Um, and then my, my black, um, friends in residency, you know, they, they'd go into a patient's room with their white coat and everything. And the patient would be like, Oh, well the trash is over there. You know, they would just assume that they were custodial staff um, or assume that they were transport. So I think it was kind of during that time where I realized kind of looking back at my med school days, why it was just so uncomfortable for me. And, you know, I really grew passionate about equality issues and racial justice. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, it translates into health, health inequities as well. Um, for patients. And so leaving, leaving Nashville, I just really wanted um, to be in a place where there was a lot more diversity. Um, So I really only looked at like big cities on the coast Mm. um, and ended up in LA. Cool. When did your time in Hanoi fit into this timeline? That was in late medical school. So Again, because WashU is very, very, it's a great school. It's a very well-funded school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to get funding to go abroad. So I did a couple things. I was in um, East Africa and Uganda for a little bit. And then my last year, I spent quite a bit of time in Southeast Asia. I worked at a hospital in Hanoi for a month with the in an HIV clinic there and learned a lot so it was great and i got to you know that was the first time i'd actually ever been to vietnam so it was oh wow yeah okay yeah wow well that's an interesting context uh for returning to to your motherland (laughs) yeah wow interesting um so you specialize in hiv aids like 
And then you had to work during the pandemic on COVID patients, basically. <laughs> how, how would you summarize like that experience before and, and during pandemic? Yeah. Like, how did your work change and how did your yeah, life change? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, when I specialize in, in HIV AIDS, it's really more that that's what all my research has been in. Mm-hmm. But my training as a clinical uh, physician is just in infectious diseases in mm-hmm. general. So we deal with all types of infections, all different viruses, et cetera. And really, I mean, we were kind of trained for epidemics and pandemics, right? Wow. Um, in the sense that we knew that it was coming at some mm-hmm. point. Um and we see it kind of every year and in much smaller scale, obviously, with the flu right. and and Ebola and SARS. Yeah. Um, even though I think for most people in the US that that seems very distant. Um, you know, it's something that that we I think as a profession are much more attuned to. So, you know, when the pandemic started, I think that we did underestimate be totally honest, we did kind of underestimate, I think, the um, level of preparedness or lack mm. of preparedness of the U.S. And I think that kind of set us up for everything else. Um, I don't think that we thought it was going to be so, you know, so quick to just explode. Basically, yeah. in China, we were like, oh, it'll probably, we thought it'd be more like SARS. I think, Right, like bird yeah. flu. It went away. Yeah, exactly. After a while. Um, but... You know, I, I work with some older colleagues who say that they basically had kind of PTSD type of symptoms from the HIV AIDS epidemic wow. where you had this virus that was just ravaging communities and people were dying and you didn't have anything to do other than just kind of support them. Um, yeah. And, and the government was kind of like turning a blind eye for so exactly. long. Right and there was a little bit of that like conspiracy, you know, flavor in there a little bit too. And I get it. There were at the height of it here in LA back in um, December, January, February, all, every patient I had had COVID. You would just watch them die. A lot of them. The hospital was so low on supplies and um, rooms. I remember we have these, um, they're called PACU units, where it's like post-op patients that are just kind of recovering. And so it's like kind of a big open bay. And we converted all of them into ICUs, into um, open bay intensive care units. So nowadays, when you go into an ICU, every patient has their own own room, you know, which obviously is going to be more sterile. There's all these glass everywhere. But during these times, it was completely open. And it literally reminded me of my experience in these third world countries um, where every it, you just had a curtain, if you were lucky, separating all these patients who were, you know, all intubated on ventilators. And I mean, it was really, it was really, really crazy. So I think even even kind of expecting that and even having some experience in settings like that, I just, it just I never thought I would see that in the U.S. You know, I wow. thought that if I had ever had to deal with some type of epidemic, it would be me volunteering in like Liberia for an like Ebola outbreak. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been really interesting. Well, I'm sure a lot of everybody watching will say Thank you <laughs> for, for just being in that position. Yes. Well, I mean, it was a, I don't know if I really had too much of a choice, but I'm happy to do it, obviously. Um, somehow, throughout all this time, you found the time to write and illustrate your first children's book <laughs> to teach yeah. young children about coronavirus. And um, can you... Give us a your elevator pitch for coronavirus is sure. boo boo. You know, you think that being in LA for however many years, I would be better at elevator pitches, <laughs> but I'm really not. Um, but basically, I think being a mom and a working mom, and having a lot of friends who are physicians and working moms, we were really kind of worried about what our kids were experiencing, and I think that worry continues. 
I'm a new mom. I only have a two year old. And so I don't know what it's like to have anybody that's older, but seeing my kid kind of having to deal with masks and having to wear a mask all the time, I was like, man, what must she be thinking? And she's Mm. not seeing her family anymore, you know? Um, yeah, she can't give hugs and all that. Yeah. Just what a different reality that is. And, and we worry about their social development, right? It's so important kind of in those early years. And I think another component of it was the misinformation that's Mm. going around, um, which we've just never really seen before. I really wanted to find a way to put out information, education for kind of that age group in a way that was really approachable, but also honest, um, which I think kind of ended up being a little bit difficult. And to also kind of touch on things like social inequalities um, that are just part of the fabric of our world and were made very, very apparent Mm -hmm. by the pandemic. And I don't think you can have an honest conversation with anyone of any age about coronavirus and it's like real impact without really talking about those things. And I think that you can talk about that to a toddler. I think that they kind of understand those things, right? We know that babies can, can tell race apart basically based on, on what they're exposed to. So yeah. And I, I found that a lot of the books that were out there, they weren't really for me. They weren't what I was looking for because they, they tended to be a little bit too high level, I think they're probably more geared to like first, second graders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, why don't I just, why don't I just write something? And, and a friend of mine, she's a family medicine doctor, but specializes in HIV really helped cheer me through it and kind of gave me a lot of feedback and, and a lot of ideas. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fun experience. Um, it was something that I would just go home and, and doodle and stuff. <laughs> So part of it was relaxing for me. I think once the book actually like got done and I had to go through the technical, you know, the logistical process of getting it published and into like a book format, uh, that's when things got really stressful. <laughs> right. Yeah. I see. Um, yeah. Cause it wasn't particularly fun at that, at that time. It was, it was, I was busy and um, it was just a whole learning curve really. Right. I'm going to show an image of your book and tell people where to find it. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Kate Liz's debut children's book is called Coronavirus is Boo Boo, and it helps kids understand the virus, and it explains basic stuff like why everyone's wearing masks. But it also touches on really important themes such as racial inequality, health inequalities, and the importance of uh, being vaccinated. You can find Kate at katelemd.com and you can find her book at coronavirusisboo.com Let's take a little break. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button. Let's get back to the show. What age range do you think is appropriate for your book? I would say between one to seven or eight. That's um, awesome. But I have I have friends who have older kids that have really enjoyed it too. Because I think you can get more out. You can get you know really basic information out of it. But like mm-hmm. you said, I think that there are some nuances there that um, kids who are a little bit older can appreciate as well. It rhymes. That is Terrence's doing because he says he hates children's books that don't rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So that was that was his suggestion, and I think uh, kids like that as well. And the illustrations are beautiful. I must say, like when I was talking to a friend about this conversation before it happened, I was like. Yo, she's a doctor. I don't know how she did this thing. Because <laughs> it looks good. You know, oh, it's like, you. it's legit. Um, how do you feel like, I don't know, because I don't have a child. And how do you feel like people trying to raise a young child at this time? Like, what do you think their biggest challenge would be? Man, there's so much. I think in in a lot of ways, I'm really lucky because my kid is 
younger than the age of like daycare and school. Mm. I think kids who are in grade school, even up through like senior year, your social life is so important Mm -hmm. that having to basically like cut that out completely is crazy. Um, The psychological impact that, I mean, I've even seen in just adults. I can't even imagine in, in, you know, teenagers and younger, um, and even really into early college, right? Like your frontal lobe is not developed Mm -hmm. and (laughs) the impact that that has that type of isolation has on somebody is long lasting. So I think parents of kids through that whole age range, I think that's their primary concern to be honest. Um, you know, we are very lucky that young people who are oftentimes going to be otherwise healthy, if they get coronavirus, you know, for the most part, everybody's going to be fine. And it's very mild disease. So I think at this point, you start to worry less about their physical illness if they were to get sick yeah. and more about their mental illness. Yeah, um, their developments. Exactly, exactly. And I think the other part that doesn't really get talked about is the um, impact on working families. Mm. So, you know, if you're relying on school to be, you know, your sort of daycare for your kid, and that is constantly, it's not even that, I think if it were just 100% shut down this entire time, it would have been easier to deal with than kind of the on and off again and, and the, mm-hmm. a lot of the unknowns um, where I have, you know, kids still get like sniffles all the time and they have coughs all the time, right? Like that's just, that's normal for them and it's not always COVID. But if, you know, I've had colleagues where they would go to drop off their kid at school and these are like nurses, physicians, people with jobs where it's not, they can't work from home, first of right. all. And at the at the door of the school, they're not able to drop their kid off because, you know, Johnny has a, a sniffle. And then they're left with, okay, you have to make all these last minute plans. And that's just something that's happening like weekly. Wow. So it's, it's really, really hard. So it's just disruptive all around. Um, and I do think that there's going to be some long lasting impacts that we'll have to deal with as a society for sure. Yeah. You said earlier that some of the new skills that you learn while putting this book out into the world included like the publishing part and the distribution and all of that. Um, was that kind of like the biggest challenge to getting this thing done? Yeah, I think so. There definitely, the, there were early on, there's the challenges of like, I just sat down and started drawing this yeah, book. A creative writing. challenge. Yeah, exactly. I just started creating. I didn't really <laughs> figure out like the formatting and like, you know, how, you know, the quality of the however many pixels. See, I don't even know. Like <laughs> the resolution. That's what I'm trying uh-huh. to do. I didn't worry about those things. And so honestly, the first the first draft it looked terrible. And I had to go back and literally do the entire thing over in the appropriate resolution just because I mean it just wasn't something that I thought about and then so that there are some logistical parts um you know being somebody where this is definitely not my day job um was a bit of a learning curve and really like slowed things down a lot to be honest I think the the part that is really difficult for me it has really been the the kind of sales part of it so Mm. I'm not and I don't know if this is my Asian background or that I'm... You're not a self-promoter, I'm right? I'm not a self-promoter. <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. I don't like talking about myself. <laughs> I didn't do it to, like, make money. You know what I mean? That yeah. thing is, like, it's really more of, like, a passion project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for Terrence, who is kind of functioning as my business guy and marketing extraordinaire, etc., it's been really frustrating for him. Um, I'm not really like a social media person. I don't like, it's just, it's, it's not in my nature. And I think part of growing your business and your brand, that's a huge part of it. Um, well, you're also saving everybody's lives right now. (laughs) Honestly, that was the other thing is is some of this was during, you know, the height of the pandemic and, you know, 
Terrence would say, well, we really need to like write some articles or think of some social media posts. And I'm like, I would get home at the end of the day and I'm like, I just had half of my patients die. Like, I just really oh, don't want man. to do this. And so, yeah, you're right. I kind of blocked that part. <laughs> that is a huge part of it. Um, yeah. And actually, you know, during all this time, I was also starting our post COVID clinic at a uh, Cedar Sinai and that that's been a whole thing mm. as well. And, and a learning experience in and of itself it's hard to keep something that was supposed to be, I think very relaxing for me <laughs> to make it into like a day job almost. Um, yeah. That transition is still really hard for me to be totally honest. Yeah. Did you learn anything else that you like didn't expect to learn in this process? Yeah. Amazon is a beast. <laughs> <laughs> They are not small business friendly. I will tell mm. you that. And I think it's it's really given me a new appreciation for small business owners for sure. Because it's not even that we're trying to make a profit. Like let's, yeah, you know, that's not even the issue. It's more like you're just trying to decrease your losses. I can't even say break even. <laughs> right. And when you know, you have businesses that are able to provide the same service, but you have to take one 50% cut. You know, I don't think people realize that when you buy something from Amazon, the seller could be making literally cents mm -hmm. on the product. So, yeah, it's really, I think it's made me rethink capitalism. <laughs> Sheesh. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we get to come on and talk to this, talk about this project and, and share it with more people. Um, yeah. Let me just remind people where to find your book. Dr. Kate Lay's children's book, Coronavirus is Boo Boo, is available, I guess, on Amazon, a bunch of other online resellers. Kate wrote and illustrated this book herself, as well as self-publishing it, um, super gnarly because she's a doctor working on corona patients. <laughs> You can find her book um, online, and I'd really love to see some big publisher come in and pick this up and distribute it all over the world. Um, it's so valuable of content for that age group. Um, so if you know anybody, hit me up. <laughs> uh, find Kate Lay at katelaymd.com and buy her book at coronavirusisboo-boo.com. Um, so in addition to... Coronavirus is boo-boo. Some of your online writing really reinforces the... It really shows that you are super passionate about racial and health and social equality um, within the health and medicine sphere. And um, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not really educated on that. And um, how would you summarize like maybe the top two or three issues that, that we need to work on? I think the way that I would think about it is one to answer your question as a physician to other physicians mm. is I think as medicine and healthcare providers, we very much assume a position of altruism, right? I think most of most people who go into medicine go into it because they care about people and they yeah. want to help people. And so the idea that there can be any type of prejudice or racial bias or any other type of bias from a physician toward a patient is often met with a lot of, well, I know I don't do that. Other people must do it because, sure. you know, we see the numbers, right? We see the numbers where, um, you know, black mothers their uh, mortality rate in labor and delivery is extraordinarily higher than women of other um, other races, specifically white women. But we don't we don't really see that as a direct result of anything that physicians do. We only think of it as a systems issue, and mm -hmm. part of it is. But I think it's really hard to deny that people still make up systems, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there are things that as a physician, you can start to think about white privilege is something that permeates everything. Yeah. Um, and then also 
just things like implicit bias is something that is evolutionary. It's something that is developed because you need it to help people survive, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, right. you make snap judgments. And just because we have now evolved into a society uh, doesn't mean that those things just go away. And the best of us are going to have biases about mm-hmm. people. And so just even, I think, coming to terms with that and understanding that, and even if you are Nobody's saying that you're racist, but you have some biases that are based on race probably. And it's okay to, to acknowledge that. And that really is kind of the first step. And I think a lot of physicians or other people in these altruistic fields kind of bypass that step. And I think it's such a necessary step. And I think, you know, the, the piece that you're talking about that I wrote really, that's what I was trying to portray because you hear a lot of physicians, you know, go to the bad about trying to provide better access to healthcare for certain communities and things like that. But it's like, hey, homie, like, let's first take a look at yourself. Anyhow, that's how I would answer, I think, the biggest problem from my, from my standpoint. And I can't even say biggest, but I think the, the first problem to address that is easy to address from an individual level um, as somebody in the field um, what about what about for normies like me? Yeah. Like what what can we do? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a similar concept, right? I, I I think of everything through a healthcare lens, but you know, I have conversations every day with my friends about privilege and implicit bias, and it's still sometimes so hard. Mm. And it's just like sometimes it's like little things where after the Atlanta shootings. I had a lot of my white friends reach out to me and text me and they're just like, Oh, I just wanted to let you know, I'm thinking about you. And I think I remember my first response was like, man, this is what black people felt like all of like 2020, 2019. Right. Like with George Floyd, it's just like, like this burden that people put on you to like, I just never really knew how to respond to to those kinds of messages. You know, you're just like, okay, so like, am I supposed to, be like, thank you, like for thinking of me or so I think there's a lot that even the most well-intentioned people have to learn about how to navigate this. And it's not easy. And I would say that, um, you, I think maybe the most important and basic step is like, be uncomfortable. I think it's time for white people to be uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think that the narrative has always been in a way to explain things to them in a way that, that makes them not so uncomfortable that they withdraw. But I feel like we're just kind of past that. And so I think that would be my, my biggest thing. And it's what I tell my white friends, to be honest, (laughs) you know, um, but maybe that's, maybe that's too blunt. You know, I, I think that, um, I, I guess I have one point to make is that we could try harder not to become instantly enraged and we should maybe have some patience to engage and, and try like all of us, right. To try to allow people to have an opportunity to understand better. Um, because a lot of us have that gut emotion where like, what you just did is so offensive, blah, blah, blah. Like sometimes like, let's, let's hash this out. Let's see what we can do. Um, but sometimes it's like, that. yeah. Here's the problem with that is that that's always been, that's always yes. been the argument, right? Is like, you can never be the angry black person. Sure. Um, it doesn't take much to be, to be, to have that label. And I think, and I'm not saying that, when white people are trying that you don't make room for that. But I also think that that needs to also come from the other side where it's, especially right now, it's things are really emotional and very Mm -hmm. raw. And there's been a lot of things that have happened that I think are really um, hurtful to these communities. And I think my advice would be, 
instead of turning to those communities and expecting them to be patient with you to explain things to you during this time is go educate yourself. You know, like you, like, honestly, white people need to be having these conversations in their own, in their own communities. It really doesn't, it shouldn't involve people of color, right? It's not our um, responsibility to sit there and be patient with you. And if people are impatient, it's not a reflection of them being angry at you, but more of a reflection of this is something that has been so hurtful. It's exhausting, right? Yeah, it's exhausting. It's like, you know, I mean, I can't even imagine sitting, like going through a trauma and then having to sit there in front of the person who who committed that trauma against you, committed that act against you that caused that trauma and to be calm, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what it feels like, I think, sometimes for people. And so certainly there are spaces where communication, you know, when people are more comfortable, um, could be, you know, more calm or whatever. But I think that you can't go into it as somebody who's trying to learn as the oppressor going into it. I don't think that you can have that expectation to be honest. I think that it's not fair. And I think that if, if you're not ready to be uncomfortable and have those conversations in a way where the other person doesn't feel like they have to be there to make you, you know, feel more comfortable then then have those conversations in your own in your own space yeah there's there's so much out there to educate yourself right so anyway i mean that's cool i i appreciate that counterpoint thank you (laughs) (laughs) um are you do you have any new creative projects in the pipeline outside of your medical responsibilities um i i was thinking about writing a new book I also just kind of do, I do a lot of portraits that, Mm. um, yeah. So I don't think I have them up on my website yet, but that's kind of the next, the next phase, but that's something that I've been wanting to put out there. And yeah, once in a while I I get the, I get the itch to, to do some creative writing. Um, but yeah, I think lately I've been a little drained. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, you know, that's totally cool to give yourself a break, <laughs> focus on you a little bit. Nice. Um, is there anything concrete that you're actively kind of like, you feel like you could level up on as just a person that you're working on? I mean, that you're comfortable sharing? Like that I'm doing creatively right now? Or just anything Not like really? yoga or breathing oh, or oh, yeah, just yeah, anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just finished. I've been reading a lot. So I have a reading goal for 2021. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, I'm the type of person where because my field is so scientific um, mm-hmm. that I hate reading nonfiction. It's just not. I just like I don't need more <laughs> education right now. So I love fiction novels are definitely my thing. Um, and so I think my goal this year is only like 10 books or something. So I just read a little bit before bed, but I just finished, I just finished Pachinko. I don't know if you've read that. My, the way my brain works, it's like impossible for me to finish a book. (laughs) He always makes fun of me because he says, Oh, when you read, you just like go places. And I was just like, yeah, it's like watching a movie in my head. So, um, yeah, I think, I think doing that, I should be better about exercising. I think that that (laughs) would be really important for everybody. And so if that, we are in LA, you know, right there with you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Man, it's hard though. It's so hard, but yeah, I really, I really should be better about that. I encourage everybody to do a little bit more activity. I I need to take my own advice that I give to patients. You heard the doc. Yeah. And, so, and a meditation practice, I think, mm, is also super important. There's so much free stuff right now because of COVID. Yeah, the focus on mental health is awesome, but meditation has so many benefits. I also could be better about that. I use a free app that's very like it's pretty casual. It doesn't make you feel intimidated, and it's called Oak. Oh, I've and heard it just that. helps me with breathing and meditation, and it's like. 
it's so um, not intimidating, and I recommend it because it's free. Yeah, Insight Timer is another one that's totally free. It's it's not very structured, which I think for some people can be a little bit difficult, but um, it is totally free. Yeah, I kind of like that unstructured thing, so I'll look into it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and it's cool because it has like all these um, like chants and like gongs Mm. and stuff. It reminds me of when I used to go to temple with my mom. Yeah, sometimes that sound like kind of brings you back here. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So you do so much stuff and you're very productive and it takes so much discipline, I think, to to have such diverse responsibilities from raising a child to like doing your medical work and then doing all your side projects. And actually just like being a human, washing dishes and laundry and stuff. Um, I've been kind of struggling balancing everything and having to kind of just shut one thing down so that I can take care of everything else. Mm-hmm. Do you have a hot tip or a life hack that you can share with me about kind of just staying consistent and, you know, not falling off the horse? Yeah, I would say I have to do the same thing. <laughs> You have, there's only so many hours in a day, right? And so I think for me, it's really been about prioritizing mm. the things that are, that are important to me. Work is actually really important to me and I get a lot of joy out of work. And so I go home and I still do certain things, but I, I do have my boundaries, right? Like I don't like when people call me after hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I, I don't have a problem setting, setting boundaries, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is kind of along those lines is having the insight to know that you can't do everything. Like we're not superhumans. I barely cook anymore. I love mm. cooking, but yeah. I barely cook anymore. I just don't have the time. And it's one of those things where I'm just like, you know what? Instead of coming home and spending an hour making dinner, I'd rather spend an hour with my daughter because I don't mm-hmm. see her that much. And if that means ordering out, then, you know, so yeah. be it. And I think being uh, kind to yourself, I think that we have, yeah, we just have so many, um, we're really hard on ourselves. <laughs> and I think even just what you said, like you just, you feel like you're not disciplined enough, but like, I don't, I don't think that me going home and, and not being able to cook for my family has anything to do with discipline. And it took me a while to kind of get to that point. Right. Like, and I was just like, I just, you have, you have limits. Everybody has limits. Everybody has boundaries. And again, there's only enough hours in the day. So be kind to yourself. And for me, it's hiring a nanny. If you're privileged enough to be able to do those things, um, you know, recognize that. But then also it's okay. It's okay to do that. <laughs> but then finally, I think I'll, kind of all the things that we talked about is that like investing five minutes of self-care into your day. It is really investment because you get back so much from it. And I think just going, going, going all day. I recognized at work between work and everything and building this new clinic at some point I was just really spread thin. And, um, you know, I have the insight that, but then also I have great coworkers who are like, Hey, like you need to cut back a little bit. And so I did, and I don't feel bad about it, you know? So you just have to, to, to know yourself, know your limits, listen to your body, listen to your, your mental health and, and make changes. Um, I think that's the most important part. Mm. Not only just recognizing those things, but then letting yourself and being and forgiving yourself enough to just make those changes and do what's good for you. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know how concrete it was, but <laughs> take, take, take care of yourselves, everybody. Exactly. Take Dr. Kate Lay, thank you so much for joining me for Coffee with Bao. I've, it's been such a great conversation and you have such great insights and um, I'm really stoked to be able to share all of this to people. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Dr. Kate Lay's uh, book is called Coronavirus is Boo Boo. You can find her at Kate Lay MD, C A T E L E M D dot com. And then you can find her book at Coronavirus is Boo Boo dot com. And um, this is like episode 25. I can't believe that. If you've been digging this show, these conversations, these guests, please support me by 
subscribing and sharing this with your peeps. I would really appreciate that. And also, if you can financially support me in making all of this content, uh, that would be super cool. You can do so at coffeewithbao.com. Thank you for joining me. Hey, it's Bao. You know, sometimes I feel insecure about even calling myself an activist. I mean, all I do is make art, right? And hope that people feel something or think or address certain topics that I care about. And that's not exactly the highly visible type of activism that they write about in articles, right? Uh, but I'm realizing that that's not true, you see? Because art inspires and art moves you to action. Art makes people feel like they're not alone. Um, essentially, art matters. Uh, so I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation that helps empower artists of color with the resources and the support system that helps them understand that their voice matters. And there are now dozens of high-profile articles about the impact of our nonprofit, uh, which makes me feel kind of good. If you think that I'm talented, you should see some of the artists that we've been working with at the Slants Foundation. But we need your financial support to do our thing. And that means money. We need you to donate money to the Slants Foundation so that we can nurture the next generation of cooler, better, smarter bows. <laughs> so if you can't afford to, please make a tax-deductible donation to the Slants Foundation by going to theslants.org and tell them that Bao sent you. All right, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. See ya.